to the final session of the Catholic Church and Jewish people in contemporary times. It's been a pleasure to have this, this, uh, seri this series going on. And if you want to catch up on the first two sessions, recordings are available. I'm going to just ask that if you are um, a panelist to please mute yourself if you're not actively talking to avoid audio feedback. Um, everyone is strongly encouraged to turn on their camera if they're in a place where they can do that. And with that, we have Dr. Simkovich. <laughs> I think it's, at this point, needs no introduction. Thank you so much, Kayla. Hi, everybody. I'm a little bit under the weather today, so um, my voice is very low. And <clears throat> it's good to see everybody. Um, I hope that there are others that are joining from Facebook that I cannot see but we're going to be at a different pace today. People complain to me anyway that I speak too fast. So I think that when I'm not feeling well, this is the opportunity to experiment with slow speaking. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about the events that led to Nostra Aetate, the landmark uh, transformation of the Catholic Church in 1965, which retracted the accusation of deicide against the Jewish people. Last week, we talked about the confusion and the ambiguities on the part of various church leaders regarding how to implement what was clearly an intentionally ambiguous document. Um, I have students today who respond to Nostratate quite negatively. They feel like it did not go far enough. It's not clear enough. It should be more explicit that the Jews are um, not simply, you know, ambiguously dear in the eyes of God, but in fact bear a legitimate covenant. But I tell my students, you have to understand that uh, this was, it passed by a hair. It, passed, it almost didn't pass, it underwent three revisions. Uh, there were still plenty of opponents to it, especially in, in the first two uh, stages of writing. Um, and the fact that the church basically undermined itself and its own teachings for 2000 years um, must be appreciated and recognized. Uh, because of the ambiguity of the document, there was a lot of questions about how to implement it. Those questions remain. There's a lot of debate about the status of the Jewish people. Um, you cannot argue that the church advocates for missionizing against Jews. In other words, Catholics are not supposed to missionize to Jews. In fact, even though uh, it's controversial for Catholics to say that the Catholic-Jewish relationship is unique, um, some progressive Catholics don't want to say that. They want to say that the Catholic-Jewish relationship is like any other interfaith relationship, but doctrinally, the Catholic-Jewish relationship is unique. So again, a lot of my progressive Catholic friends feel a little uncomfortable with that, but I'm pretty uh, confident in that assertion. What that means is that Catholics cannot proselytize to Jews. Um, but the question of what precisely the status of the Jews are is uh, like I keep saying, it's unclear. Dual competent theology, the idea that Catholics and Jews both have equally legitimate parallel um, covenants goes too far for the vast majority of Catholics. Um, and the document, um, Dominus Jesus, that we looked at from, I think it's uh, the year 2000, that remember Pope Benedict, um, sorry, uh, while well, he would have been Ratzinger then, was very involved in writing, insists there is no salvation outside of the Messiah, Jesus. And so because of that, the, um, the church has created for itself a theological pretzel. And we don't know the end of the story yet. This is still unfolding. We don't know in 50 or 100 years what the Catholic Church is going to be saying about the Jews, but the binding nature of the Second Vatican Council makes it pretty clear that they, they, it would be almost impossible for them to backwalk the teachings of Nostra Aetate, so that's good. In any case, the question of how Jews respond um, is probably what motivated you, uh, at least in part, to join this course, and there's no straight answer. Um, just like in the Catholic Church, you have a lot of debate about the status of the Jews and the goals and the nature of interreligious dialogue. On the Jewish end, uh, you likewise have a lot of questions about the status of the Catholic Church. What I'm not going to do today is explore the rabbinic, the medieval, the early modern halachic material about the status of Christianity. You probably know that the Rambam says that Christianity as opposed to Islam is idolatrous. 
Um, and there are a lot of ramifications for that. Of course, you have to understand the cultural context in which Rambam is living and he doesn't have direct contact with Christianity necessarily the way that he has exposure to Islam. But um, there's a lot of practical ramifications. Uh, of course, you know that there are halakh questions about drinking the wine of idolaters. Um, and so, you know, if Catholic, the Catholic Church is idolaters, then we have a big problem. And not all Catholics are the same, right? You have the Eastern Orthodox Church as opposed to the Western, the Latin Church. Um, I mean, well, that would be the Catholic Church would be the Western Latin Church. But if you go into East Orthodox traditions like Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, um, these churches, I'm a little hesitant to say this on a recorded call, but these churches, I would say more obviously represent what Jews would classically consider to be idolatrous because of the very visible iconography and because of the emphasis on the physical aspect of, um, oh my gosh, what are they called? When you have like a little, the ear of John Chrysostom, what is that called? Someone could unmute. Uh, relic? I, relics, yes, thank you. Um, and so the emphasis on icons and relics um, in the Eastern churches are, um, are, are quite, I would say, halakhic be a problem. Now, all of that, we're not discussing the halakhic status of the Catholic Church today. Um, well, I should say you should know about this category of shituf. Shituf means to participate in. And um, the, the, um, the medieval and early medieval halakhic category of shituf was able to, was applied to Christianity in such a way that Christianity was characterized as a kind of defective monotheism. So that um, shituf refers to the ways in which the uh, Christianity um, <clears throat> believes that there's a deity that uh, taps into the one true divine, but is, also lies outside of it. Whatever the case is, you should read Karma Ben Yochanan. She talks a little bit about this. There's endless material about it. I'm not so interested today in the halachic status of Christianity, of whether it's idolatrous, of what exactly shituf means, which is not always clear. Um, I want to talk much more about theology. And what I'm going to do, I really didn't like the PowerPoint because every time I clicked on something, it went to the next slide. And I like to highlight things. So I'm just going to take you to the late 1960s and bring you into a conversation among observant American rabbinic leadership. Uh, and you'll notice, I mean, most of the literature is not halachic. Most of the literature, um, and, and you'll see even the word use, is emotional and very much grounded in opposed to Holocaust um, setting. There's a myth that uh, Orthodox Jewry did not talk about the Holocaust for the first few generations after uh, it happened, but it's not true. We have so much literature from uh, this uh, period of the generation after the extermination of six million Jews. But anyway, I'm going to start with Abraham Joshua Heschel. Now I've mentioned to you that Heschel was instrumental in, um, in formulating Nostra He was very close with Cardinal Bea. He obviously, um, and, and I think you might remember the picture of Heschel and Bea together. Uh, he has a close personal contacts with the church. Um, it doesn't mean that he lets the church off the hook by any means. And if any of you are familiar with Simon Wiesenthal's book, The, the Sunflower, anybody know about this book, The Sunflower? Someone's on my shelf. I think it's called The Sunflower. Now I'm worried that I have the name wrong. Someone has to look it up for me. Um, Simon Wiesenthal, right? Hold on a second. So this is very, very famous. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so Simon Wiesenthal writes this book and, oh, if you haven't read it, you have to read it. But basically the first 50 pages or so is a scenario, it's sort of like a semi-fictional scenario where there's a Nazi um, guard of a concentration camp who's wounded at the end of the war and he's dying, or maybe it's after the war and he finds a Jew. In this scenario, Simon Wiesenthal writes as if it's himself approaching the Nazi and the Nazi says, you have to come here, you have to come here, I'm about to die. I've been mortally wounded and I need your forgiveness because you're a Jew killed all these Jews and he goes through very disturbing detail about the horrible he set a building on fire and the ghetto it's like just a horrible atrocities and he said I'm the response I'm responsible for the deaths of hundreds if not thousands of Jews and I need your forgiveness and Wiesenthal so in, in the story Wiesenthal walks away doesn't answer he just leaves in silence and comes back the next day the guy's bed is empty he says to the nurse oh where's that Nazi soldier who was sick yesterday and she says he died um, and so the question that Wiesenthal poses to like 20 or 30 uh, various 
Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish theologians when he wrote this book was, should I have forgiven the Nazis? And you would be very fascinated and also maybe upset and disturbed to hear the responses. I think Desmond Tutu wrote a response. I know Heschel wrote a response. I'm going to talk about that. There are many famous, like if you open up the table of contents to the Sunflower, you'll see many famous names that you would recognize. Um, I guess like a slim volume. I highly recommend it. Um, and you will see like for the large part, there's a very clear divide between the Catholic theologians saying, of course, you have to forgive the Nazi and the Jews saying, oh, hard pass on that now. And actually, Heschel is one of the people that surprised me um, when I read this book by saying, no, it's not, who am I to forgive you for the murder of 6 million? That's not my privilege. That, that's between you and God and the people who are murdered. I have nothing to do with that. I can, it would be presumptuous and arrogant for me to take that on and provide you with what we would call absolution. Heschel says absolutely not. And so I think Heschel gets a little bit of a short shrift, especially in the Orthodox community um, in terms of his thinking. Sometimes he's sort of dismissed as this like bleeding heart liberal tree hugger. Um, it's really not the case if you read Heschel. He's very head on when it comes to the Holocaust and the uh, theological responsibility that the church had in, um, in the events leading up to it. Do we use the term forgiveness the same way Christians use? Excellent question. So maybe I'll get to that in the Q&A a little bit. I don't have like a straight yes or no answer, but I have some thoughts. So let's try to get to that, the Q&A. Um, but I would say the short answer a lot would probably be no, um, but it's a great question. Um, in any case, so Heschel uh, writes in 1965. So he knows that Nostradamus just come out. He probably wrote this before October 28th, 1965. He probably wrote it before Nostradamus was officially declared, but he knew it was coming. So he writes this very famous essay, No Religion is an Island. And he says, listen, you know, it's not, he makes a case for the interconnectedness of all people, not on the basis that we're all the same, but on the basis that despite our differences, we still have to come together. This to me is a little bit of a middle ground when it comes to the question of inter-religious dialogue. So he says, what divides us? What unites us? You know, we do disagree in law and creed in commitments, which lie at the very heart of our religious existence. We say no to one another in some doctrinal, uh, in some doctrines essential and sacred to us. And I'm just gonna spoil the ending for you here. Heschel knows that figures like Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik are going to say, you cannot have interfaith dialogue without some expectation of theological transactionalism. And I think Heschel is pushing back on that. And he's saying, well, you can have dialogue as long as the dialogue begins with an affirmation that we say no to each other theological, uh, in theological ways and that we recognize where the boundaries lie. But what unites us is very significant, right? We are accountable to the same God. And so here, I'm not sure that this would apply to every person on earth, right? You have atheists, you just have people, um, you know, like outside the Abrahamic faith who they might say, well, I believe in a God, but maybe that's not the God of Abraham, right? It's a different, different God. Uh, but I think here he's talking about what we've called the Abrahamic religions. Um, and he specifically has the, the Jewish Christian relationship in mind. What unites us are being accountable to God, are being objects of God's concern, precious in his eyes, our conceptions of what ails us might be different, but the anxiety is the same. But then he backtracks it and he says, listen, we all have the same God. Okay, again, he's talking about Christians specifically here. We all have the same anxiety about encountering the divine. We have different particular doctrines and laws and creeds. But then he backtracks and says, but by the way, difference is important, must be respected and honored. Because if you Christians wish for the end of Judaism, if you wish for all Jews to convert to Christianity, really, what you're wishing for. And here he says it clearly, a Christian ought to realize that a world without Israel is a world without the God of Israel. And so if you're wishing, it's a great line, if you're wishing for Jews to convert, you're wishing for the eradication of the God that came to Abraham, the God that made promises to his children, Yitzhak and Yaakov and their children. You are trying to eradicate that heritage, that, that legacy. On the other hand, he continues, a Jew ought to acknowledge the eminent role and part of Christianity in God's design for the redemption of all men. Now, this is a trope that you'll see in a number of variations of contemporary Jewish thinkers, Rosenzweig, Yitz Greenberg, 
Heschel, they all have this idea that at the core of Christianity is a universalization of what they call the ethical monotheistic message of Judaism. This is a little messy and all, these thinkers are not all the same, but the idea that Judaism gets this message of monotheism and then the Christians had this one major contribution, which is that they bring that monotheism to the broader world. You'll find this theme crop up. Again, I think it's more complicated than that. I personally, I, I, wrote, I wrote a book on universalism. I personally take issue with the characterization of Christianity as universalist. I don't think it is. Um, and the reason why I don't think it is, is because Christianity argues that there's no salvation outside of and so because of that, um, <clears throat> because of that, it adopts an in and out model. So either you're in, you're in the covenantal community, in which case you're saved, or you're out, in which case you are not saved. And Judaism does not adopt that model. Um, rabbinic literature classically says that even if you're not Jewish, you can, again, like Alana's question about forgiveness, salvation in Judaism is very different too. Like, what does it mean to be saved in Judaism? Um, but all people can, you know, um, like if you observe the Noahi laws, okay, there is a chauvinism there. There's a hierarchy there between Jews and non-Jews um, according to the model of Noahi laws. But there isn't a condemnation of those who lie outside the Jewish covenant. And so to my mind, um, missionizing on the basis that you can't be saved outside of Christ is by definition particularist. Um, and so this sort of assumption that Christianity did something right by universalizing the message, to me, I think is, um, is, a, is a flawed model. But he doesn't say universalist. He just says that Christianity is part of God's design for the redemption of all men, implying that if you enter into the Christian or Jewish faith, you're ultimately moving towards redemption. I know I'm going way slower than I wanted to go, but I do want to share one analogy when I see a question in the chat. We speak of the righteous Gentile, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> I've ever been a colleague who said to me, um, who gave me a great analogy. He said, um, the approach that some liberal Jews and liberal Catholics have when it comes to one another is what might be called the Cadillac theology. The Cadillac theology is as follows. Um, okay, so in this metaphor, the Cadillac is sort of is the better car. I don't know if Cadillac is like a Lexus or a Tesla today. Let's call it the Tesla theology. The person who told me this is older, so in his mind, Cadillac. No offense to old people who think, okay, whatever, you get it. We're going to call it the Tesla theology. In Tesla theology, I am driving my, I'm driving my super fast, elegant, beautiful, sleek car, and it gets me there direct and it's such a pleasure to be in that car and I get exactly to my destination and the process is really pleasant. And then I'm there and I'm like, wow, smooth sailing. Uh, my friend drives a 1981 Ford, what's like an old car from like 1980. I don't know, I'm trying to think of like an old Nissan. No offense, anyone drives Nissan. Okay, my parents drove a Nissan, then it broke down. Um, so, you know, you drive a Nissan, so you're clunking along and it's bumpy and you might break down here and there, but you know, you'll get, you'll get there. You're just not going to get there in style. No one's really going to, you know, admire you. You're not, you don't have much to offer aesthetically. There's fumes, there's, you get to the end, but you know, you're sort of like bumping and clunking. Um, and so this is like the Tesla, what, what he called the cat, the Cadillac theology is this idea that like, Ultimately, like both Jews and Christians will be fine in the end, but like one gets there in style. So I thought that that was funny. Um, but again, you know, these are <laughs> these are like big generalizations for complicated ideas. Okay, so Heschel is saying that um, at the end of the day, we have to honor the boundaries that separate Judaism and Christianity, but also focus on the fact that we are committed to the same scriptures, the same God, the same, he says, justice and mercy, the same values, contrition, sanctity of life. Okay, fine, this to me is a middle ground. Now, um, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, I think out of the four thinkers that I'm going to be looking at, see, I just love pictures, I have to put pictures in them, are the four thinkers that we're gonna be looking at, which is Heschel, Greenberg, Berkowitz, Eliezer Berkowitz, and Salvechik. Uh, Greenberg goes the very, very, very farthest theologically when it comes to the relationship between Jews and Christians. It's not in this uh, passage that I'm giving you, but he very famously, he said it actually numerous times that when a Jew and a Christian die and they go to 
heaven, they go to Shemayim and they say, okay, God, who was right? Was, was it the Jew who rejected Jesus as Messiah? Or was it the Christian who said that Jesus was Messiah? Who was right? And God will say no comment. That's Greenberg's big thing. But you know what? You never even need to know. He also, over the course of decades, stopped referring to Jesus as a false Messiah and more recently has referred to him as a failed Messiah. Hear the difference? So he's actually become a little bit more extreme. I don't like the word extreme, it's not extreme, but uh, more sort of open to the possibility that Christianity has a legitimate covenant. Um, and, and this begins really in the 60s. So again, a false Messiah suggests that there was nothing about Jesus that was um, you know, messianic, but a failed Messiah means that Jesus had the potential to bring all humanity into a period of eschatological uh, redemption and that it didn't happen, but it could happen. So that's like quite, yeah, it's very far. Okay, but anyway, um, also I, I highly recommend, and I don't wanna you know, share Greenberg just to criticize Greenberg. I highly recommend uh, his very famous article, Cloud of Smoke, Pillar of Fire, which is not on the source sheet, but you can find it. I think it's on like rabbiirvinggreenberg.com. You can get all his articles. And out of all of his writing, I highly, highly, highly recommend Cloud of Smoke, Pillar of Fire, where he grapples with the Holocaust and he, he develops the sort of Holocaust theology. And he very famously says to Christians in that article, never say anything about the Jews. This is very scary. So if you have a child, you might want to just like keep in mind, I'm about to say something very harsh. Um, Greenberg says to Christians, if you uh, never say anything about the Jews that you would not say in front of the burning children. So that was a very powerful line. Never say anything about the Jews like among your own company that you would not say in front of the burning children. So anyway, Greenberg struggles with the Holocaust, just like Heschel, uh, but where he lands is uh, much more um, openness to the possibility of what we would call the dual covenant theology. And so he says, first of all, Christians need to realize that the revelation, I'm really, by the way, like my pace is really not good to finish this, but that's okay. Um, Christians need to realize that, sorry, I'm just looking. Oh, okay, I'm just looking at the comments. Let's save it for the Q&A a little bit. Um, okay, so that um, according to the Jewish experience, what happened with the Holocaust and the establishment of the state of Israel was uh, extreme withdrawal of the, of the divine. And uh, uh, for the Holocaust, it was extreme withdrawal that God was not there. And that over the past 2000 years, God has gone from what Greenberg calls being a senior partner in the covenant to being uh, a standard partner in the covenant to being a junior partner, by which he means that as God stops doing miracles and stops giving prophecy and like slowly withdraws, that humankind has more of an obligation to um, take on moral responsibility for one another. Um, and that the Holocaust was a failure, not of God, but of humankind to recognize the increased absence of God in the world and that they now have to take responsibility. And so that was a dropping of the ball that humanity didn't realize that they were senior partners in this relationship with God. But revelation is still a possibility and the recognition that God can reveal himself into the lives of all people, but especially the Jews is key to Greenberg's theology. And he says, the recognition that God, that there can be revelation today does not undercut the validity of the gospel message. So here he implies that the gospel might be valid. The further revelation clarifies Paul's affirmation that Jewish rejection of Christ paves the way for Gentile acceptance into the covenant. So that Greenberg says, even according to Paul, the Jews rejecting Jesus was part of a larger story in which Jesus ends up bringing this message of God to all Gentiles, and so that has some positive productivity that the Jews rejected Jesus. The later revolution illuminates the earlier, giving a new interpretive key in God's unbroken promises. So then he says, now if, well, I'll just read this, paradoxically enough, all of these good things that have happened to the Jews, the security of its own confirmation, the restoration of the land, that's the establishment of the state of Israel, the covenantal sign, the new Jewish strength that we've seen after the Holocaust releases Judaism to ponder anew the significance of Christianity. In other words, with the establishment of the state of Israel and now no longer being in a position of vulnerability, of weakness, of near annihilation, Jews can now maybe give a little more to Christianity. When they were powerless, right, when they were not at 
by the contrast of hope and reality, they had to push Christianity away, right? Or patronizingly say something about the Jews, oh, uh, the Gentiles, you share in the world to come, you have the Noahide love uh, covenant, but really we're better. But that was from a position of weakness. Now that they're experiencing redemption in the week of the establishment of the state of Israel, shaken by the Holocaust, not to put down others, Judaism can no longer give patronizing answers. It must explore the possibility that the covenant, and this is like really quite shocking, grafted onto it is a way whereby God has called Gentiles to God. So that now Christianity and Judaism, according to Greenberg, are sibling religions by which Christianity has a specific role of bringing Gentiles into relationship with God. Whereas Jesus' messianism led to hatred, exclusion, pogrom, right? That's anti-Semitism. That's false, but it can, Christianity can lead to mitgefuhl. If I butcher that's fine, but it means some kind of like extreme sympathy, sharing of risk and love. Uh, then it's phenomenal. That's another word I can't say. Phenomenology becomes radically uh, different. That's not a difference. It's different. So um, basically, when Christianity is done right, it can be a partner relationship to Judaism that brings the message of God to the Gentiles, to all people. Um, and I think that the partnership that Greenberg envisions is much stronger, actually, than the partnership of Heschel, who's often kind of rejected as being like a hyper-universalist. But really, if you read Greenberg, I think he goes well past Heschel. And I want to introduce you to two thinkers who go in the opposite direction. The first is the famous, um, I live in Skokie, so uh, I feel a special connection with Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz, who um, led HTC Hebrew Theological college uh, in Skokie, Illinois for many years before making Aliyah. And um, I think a really, I, I don't want to say underrated theologian, but maybe a theologian that is not so well known that really, really should be well known, I think, um, in modern Orthodox circles uh, for his for his writing, for his thinking. Um, and here, I, he Berkowitz classically and many times takes extreme issue with Heschel um, in many areas, especially when it comes to Heschel's depiction of um, prophecy and the relationship between the prophet and God. By the way, <clears throat> Todd Berman, I don't know if anybody of, of you know, Todd Berman, who is one of the heads of, I think, the Yeshiva Eretz in Israel, just wrote a wonderful article for Tradition on Berkowitz's attitude towards Heschel. And I recommend reading that article, which you can get online on the Tradition uh, website. So Berkowitz uh, has many issues with Heschel, but I think here it's unclear to me whether by 1966, Greenberg would have been on his radar. So even this looks to me like he's responding to Greenberg, but Greenberg would have been very young and just coming on the scene in 1966. Um, so you're gonna see that he's very upset about observant Jews sort of embracing the interreligious relationship. Um, I think he probably has Heschel in mind, but uh, maybe, maybe Greenberg as well. So this is what he says. Many Christians and Jews these days are advocating the idea of a Jewish-Christian dialogue. The schema on the Jews, and he knows, by the way, about Nosher Taken. The schema on the Jews recommends fraternal dialogues. Oh, yeah, he's citing Nosher Taken in order to foster, quote, a mutual knowledge and respect. We have to analyze this. And by the way, he keeps saying the word emotional. And emotional, I think, this word does not mean irrational, right? It doesn't mean like, oh, we, sh you know, we should dismiss it because it's just emotional. It's not logical. Um, emotional here is like a very valid thing. So we should approach it emotionally, philosophically, theologically, practically. And again, he says it emotionally here and then he says it again over here. Emotionally, right? So maybe halakhically you can make a defense for engaging with Christians, um, philosophically maybe, but he says, no, I'm, we're not ready to enter into any kind of fraternal dialogue with the church that's been responsible for so much suffering, which is ultimately responsible for the murder of our fathers and brothers, uh, mothers, brothers and sisters in the present generation, right? The Holocaust just happened. And there are only, you know, there, there are Jews who are only too eager to undertake such a dialogue. These Jews are either without memories, he has very sharp words for these Jews. They're either Jews without memories or Jews for whom Judaism is exclusively a matter of public relations. It's very cynical, I think. Or confused or spineless Jews unable to appreciate the meaning of confrontation. Here, it could be that he has Salvatic's 1964 um, speech confrontation in mind, but I don't know if Berkowitz is alluding to that. Um, but um, these Jews are confused, they're spineless, they're unable to appreciate the meaning of confrontation in full freedom. 
In other words, any kind of dialogue between Jews and Christians, according to Berkowitz, would not provide Jews full comfort, full freedom to fully articulate themselves, which includes a rejection of, of Jesus as God that, according to Berkowitz, Christians would not find tenable, they would not accept. For Jews as a whole, an honest fraternal dialogue is emotionally impossible. Again, we see this word for the third time, emotion. The idea of interreligious dialogue is ethically objectionable because it makes respect. And this I think is a fantastic point that 99% of my colleagues today missed. I'm just gonna set up this paragraph for a second. The vast majority of interreligious conversations that I have center on the assumption that we are in a competition for truth. In other words, we're going to have a conversation with you Christians because of the following things that we agree on and the things that we don't agree on reflect the fact that we have more truth than you and nevertheless, we're willing to talk to you, right? The barometer of the relationship becomes a barometer of the degree to which a group of people has truth or doesn't have truth. I, I do have a, an issue with this. I see it all the time. When you make, when you defend the legitimacy of a relationship based on the amount of truth that, that, that your interlocutor has, you can run into major problems. So this is what Berkowitz says, just to, I think he actually makes the point a lot clearer than I just did. The idea of interreligious dialogue, uh, understanding is ethically objectionable because it makes respect on the other man dependent on whether I'm able to appreciate his religion or his theology, right? It's like, oh, I get you, so we could be friends. Oh, we have the same scriptures, so we could talk. We have the same God, so we could talk, right? And then the official, in Nostra Tate, it says the church wants to foster knowledge and respect, right, based on those commonalities. But we find the suggestion that mutual knowledge and respect among people should be the fruit of biblical and theological studies repugnant. In other words, human dignity has to be unconditional. It can't be based on whether we think we have similarities or not, right? This kind of logic implies that if I'm able to appreciate another person's beliefs and I ought to respect and love them, but if not, my contempt is understandable, right? So again, using truth as a barometer for relationship is very problematic for him. He's not interested in finding those commonalities because he finds them irrelevant. And then we get to the most famous line that Berkowitz ever wrote. Hold on one second. This is still conceived in the old questions. Uh, I think I might have a typo here because I was doing this very late at night. Um, tradition of religious persecution. I'm sorry, I think I might have skipped a word, but here is the most important line. Very, very, very famous. It's not a matter of whether Christianity acknowledges fragmentary truths and Jews and like they're giving us some crumbs. Like, oh, good job, little Jews. You got the Old Testament right. That's so adorable. You're so close. We don't care whether you think we have the truth or some of the truth or half the truth, partial truth. All we want of Christians is that they keep their hands off us and our children. The most famous line he ever wrote. Just leave us alone. Don't give us little theological crumbs and then expect us to be bounding over to you, enjoying gratitude. We don't want you, we don't need you. So that's very powerful, right? I'm not here to tell you who I think is right and who I sympathize with. I think all of these figures in their different ways are doing something very radical and brave. But these are their positions, right? You can't invalidate someone's positions like Berkowitz said four times. These are emotional responses, right? They're not halakhic. But you know, when a parent says, oh, that kid is being sensitive, like sensitive is a bad word. Like the fact that the child is sensitive somehow invalidates the legitimacy of their feelings. Like emotions are valid, right? And powerful and real. Let's go to let's go to Solvagic. I didn't expect to spend so much time on these, but it's very important before we get to the actual collective statements that we've seen in the past five years. I want to bring you to the most famous response that most modern Orthodox Jews know about regarding interreligious dialogue, and that is, of course, Rabbi Joseph Dov Soloveitchik's very, very famous speech that was turned into a um, that was published in Tradition, 1964, as confrontation. And we have a little bit here. Uh, just one paragraph, um, but in confrontation, Rosalvechik says as follows: Before you enter into dialogue with any community, but especially the Catholic Church, the first thing that has to be recognized is the power differential between Jews and Christians. You can't enter dialogue on the false pretense. 
that Jews and Christians are equal and have equal power, right? There are billions of Christians. There's, and, and then I don't know how many millions of Jews today, there are about 14 million Jews. After the Holocaust in 1964, there are probably less than 10 million, right? But he calls Christianity the community of the many and Jews the community of the few. And when the community of the few engages into dialogue with the community of the many, by necessity, they have to adopt the theological language of the community of the many, right? And every faith community has its own theological vocabulary that cannot be fully communicated to an outside community. And that's the most important central thesis that Salvagic makes. So I'm gonna say it again, although I don't remember what I said. And I kind of have a fever right now, but <laughs> trying to focus. Um, and also um, <clears throat> there's, yeah, only 24 minutes. So um, I don't wanna spend so much time on this, but a faith community cannot successfully communicate its theological vocabulary to an outside community. And when it makes the effort to do so, there will inevitably be misunderstanding and ultimately an expectation of theological transactionalism. And Soloveitchik warned that if you enter into dialogue with the church, first of all, you're, you're not going to be successful in convincing the church of the impactful nature of the power differential. The fact that Jews are coming into that position of after 2000 years of being vilified, demonized, exterminated, um, expelled. And that there will inevitably be a desire on the part of those Christians who believe there's no salvation outside of Christ that ultimately these Jews require Jesus to achieve salvation. So Salvagic essentially said, you can dialogue with, with uh, Christian partners for practical, social, political purposes, but theological dialogue will end in expectations of transactionalism and you will not successfully fully communicate your position because of the nature of your unique vocabulary um, to the outside community. And so he says, we cannot command the respect of our confronters by displaying a servile attitude. In other words, after 2000 years of bullying us, the church finally says, all right, we're ready to talk. And did you say, okay, all right, great. Yeah, 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 let's do that. We're totally, we're ready to talk. Salvation says that's a servile attitude. Only a candid, frank and unequivocal policy reflecting unconditional commitment to our God, a sense of dignity, pride and inner joy in being what we are, right? Believing with great passion and ultimate truthfulness of our views, et cetera, et cetera. Only that, only drawing the boundaries unequivocally and saying, we will not trespass these boundaries. Only that will impress the peers of the other faith community among whom we have both adversaries and friends. And it's very true in my experience that the best partners in the Catholic church are those who absolutely respect the boundaries that uh, their Jewish interlocutors make. Those are the most productive. The ones with the hardest boundaries, I think are the most productive because there's no expectation of transformation or conversion. All right, so these are the, the four that I wanted to begin with, although that's taken up the bulk of our class. But I also wanna point out to you what uh, the great uh, philosopher, Michael Wishagrad said about confrontation, which is that ultimately, and this is a little bit of a hard idea to explain, but ultimately confrontation had the opposite effect that Salavagic wanted. I'm not sure if I agree with Wishagrad, but I'm gonna tell you what he says and you can decide what you think about it. He says that because for Salavagic, all dialogue really he implies has a, a theological nature because you can't separate the theological aspect of an observant Jew and the secular aspect. There is no secular aspect. Halakha is all encompassing. So as an observant Jew, everything I do, everything I say, every act I engage in is a theological act because halakha is all encompassing. So it's an all or nothing, it's a zero sum game, which regards says about salvation. Either you engage in in dialogue and by nature it will be theological or you withdraw. But Wishagrad points out that even if the pretense of the dialogue is political or social, ultimately it is by its very nature theological as well because you're coming into that space as a Jew. And because people read Soloveitchik's article as basically saying your whole essence is theological. So any engagement with Christians is a theological one 
the response had to be, well, either we totally ignore the church or we engage with it theologically. And the response ultimately was, well, we have to engage with the church theologically. We can't just pretend it doesn't exist. And so according to Wishagrad, the, the um, effect of confrontation ultimately boomeranged and produced more theological dialogue with the church than less. Does that make sense? Let's read it. It's not possible to split a Jew into two demanding of him to keep what's most important about his very identity out of the dialogue, right? Every dialogue has to be theological. Right now he's explaining salvation. All Jewish values are rooted in revelation to pretend otherwise is a charade, right? The option is whether to talk with Christians or not to talk with them for salvation. Either you talk with them, then you're doing theology and that's a problem, or you ignore them. If you refuse to talk to them, we can keep theology and everything else out of dialogue. If we do not refuse to talk with them, we cannot keep what's most precious to us out of the discussion any interaction will be a theological one. Confrontation ended the era of orthodox withdrawal from Jewish Christian dialogue. I'm not so sure that this is, that this is a little bit of like a binary because we still have orthodox Jews today saying, but Soloveitchik said we can't talk to them. In any case, according to Wishagrad, if experience and logic have shown that's not possible to separate the secular from the religious, the dialogue must continue in accordance with its inner dynamic. My experience has been that Jews who meet religious Christians emerge strengthened in their, their faith and grateful for those uh, righteous Gentiles who through, through Christianity have approached the God of Israel. But I just think it's very interesting that Wishagrad says, because people recognized by reading confrontation that all interaction is theological, they basically said, well, whatever then, I might as, we might as well do theological dialogue since any interaction will be theological and we can't ignore them altogether. So I'm curious to know what you think about that, but let's save that for the Q&A. All right, so now we have, we have Heschel and Greenberg who are on the side of um, engagement and theological engagement, and, the, and they uh, propose this notion of a kind of covenantal partnership, even though they both maintain that the boundaries have to be you know, very firm between the religions, that there is this covenantal partnership that brings the message of God to the nation, so the Christians play a big part in that. You have Berkowitz who says, keep your hands off us and our children. We don't want you. Just leave us alone. And then we have Salvagic who says, you, we can interact with them for pragmatic purposes, right? Lobbying, political, social, whatever, but not theological. And then you have Wishagrad who says, well, really, Salvagic is not dumb. He understands that what is going to play out is because all interactions are theological, that ultimately this will lead to theological dialogue. And by the way, does anybody know where his most famous treatise, The Lonely Man of Faith, which uh, was given as a series of speeches before it was published. Anybody know where, um, where Salvagic gave those speeches? Just unmute. In Boston? Oh, no, I froze, I froze. Can you hear me now? Yeah, you're good now. Okay. Um, yeah, at St. John's Seminary in Brighton, Massachusetts, to a bunch of seminarians. Um, when I froze, what did you miss? Do you have any questions? Uh, no, no, it was just for a, a moment. Go ahead. Sorry about that. Okay. Next time it happens, uh, you can just cut me off. Uh, hopefully I'll hear you because um, I don't check the check. Yeah. Um, just to come, just jump in. Um, Ruth, I think you might need to check your internet connection. And, um, Dr. Sinkovich, on my end, you, you, were, you were smooth. Okay, that's fine. And also it's being recorded, so you can always um, look it over. All right, so now I wanna go in the last 10 or 15 minutes to official Jewish documents, which actually I had intended on spending the majority of the hour on. This is the same old story of my life. Um, and so it takes 35 years for the Jews to get their act together and produce a collective, uh, collective document signed by a group of, in this case, Jewish academics that respond to Nostra Aetate. It's not surprising that it takes 35 years. Um, it took the church 2000 years to retract this accusation of deicide. Um, and Deborah Ahmed is the first public document, again, produced by Jews to respond to the overtures of the church. And the, the signatories, two of them, maybe three, have rabbinic ordination, um, but they're all academics, actually at, at least three, uh, have rabbinic ordination and, um, and they're all academics as you can see. Now, the, this um, document it was published in the New York Times and ultimately was signed by many hundreds of Jewish 
uh, public intellectuals, leaders, academics, clergy, but it was very, very controversial in the Orthodox community. Right? By 2000, there is a quite robust behind the scenes dialogue happening with the church among leaders of the Jewish community, including the Orthodox community, the Orthodox Union and the RCA both have representatives going to the Vatican as part of what's called IJCIC. I don't remember what IJCIC stands for. It's I-J-C-I-C. Um, but even by the late 60s, you have these behind the scenes dialogues that are happening. They're not public, um, but they are, they are including Orthodox representatives who are having meetings, under the radar meetings with Vatican officials, um, and even today, the OU has representatives in Ishkik, um, and uh, and the and Orthodox Jewish leadership is involved in in Catholic Jewish relations. It's only very recently that they've advertised this as something that they tout, as, you know, a value. But it's been going on for decades, absolutely. Um, so this document, Deborah Met, is not an orthodox document per se, it's an academic document, but it was critiqued specifically by orthodox thinkers. And I'll, 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 you'll see why in a moment. So first of all, it says, you know, in recent years, there's been a dramatic and unprecedented shift. Again, this was published in the New York, New York Times, which is kind of a strange way to publicize the document, uh, but okay. Um, and then it says there's been a shift in Jewish-Christian relations after 2000, two millennia of Jewish exile, um, uh, throughout throughout two millennia of Jewish exile, Christians characterized Jews as a failed religion or a religion that prepared the way for Christianity. But now the time has come, given the transformation of the church, to produce a thoughtful Jewish response. And here's our response. Now, Nostratate comprises 10 statements, 10 affirmations that Jews and Christians can make about one another. Some of these seem pretty benign, and you might think, okay, that's like pretty standard, but some of them were very, very controversial. I think it's 10, or is it eight? Hold on a second, four, five, six. No, it's only eight. Okay, so Jews and, were, Jews and Christians worship the same God already. That to me is quite controversial because it elides thousands of years of debate regarding the status of the Trinity, right? Is it the same God? Then what do you do with the Trinity? What do you do with the status of Jesus? And here, you know, this is a public statement. It's not a theological, it's not a it's not like a papal document. So these are very pithy short statements. And here it just sort of dismisses the whole question. Christian worship is not a viable religious choice for Jews. Uh, as Jewish theologians, we rejoice that through Christianity, hundreds of millions of people have entered into relationship with the God of Israel. And here we hear echoes of Greenberg, of Heschel, um, that Christianity has brought knowledge of that God to the world. But it really aligns, it really eclipses the question of whether we actually do kind of worship God in the same way, keeping in mind this category, halacha category of shituf, that Christianity um, engages in a kind of defective monotheism, where yes, they're aware of the one God, but then they also have this idea of this sort of um, deity that enters into the physical realm. Okay. Jews and Christians seek authority from the same book. I think I've spoken in the past about how I don't think the Tanakh and the Old Testament are the same thing. Um, the Old Testament is a different order that orders theological in the Catholic tradition um, that it includes the, the, the canonicity of the Apocrypha is very significant. It's not canonical in the Jewish tradition, okay? But again, it's a public document. So they can't go, they're not dumb. They know these things, but they're not gonna go into detail. Christians can respect the claim of the Jewish people upon the land of Israel, fine. Christians and Jews can accept the moral principles of the Torah. But now we get to the most controversial statement in the whole document. Here we have to pause because this is really, <clears throat> might shock you. Nazism was not a Christian phenomenon. Okay, so just like blatant, just separate those two things. Not a Christian phenomenon. Without the long history of Christian anti-Judaism, yes, Nazi ideology could not have taken hold. Too many Christians participated in Nazi atrocities, so fine. Other Christians didn't protest sufficiently, but Nazism itself was not an inevitable outcome of Christianity. And here we get to the really difficult line. If the Nazi extermination of the Jews had been fully successful, it would have turned its murderous rage more directly to Christian. Right? If all the Jews were wiped out, then the Nazis, right, Ruth is shaking her head. How in the world do they know that? What evidence? Was there a meeting at Von C? Was there a meeting somewhere to discuss the final solution about the Christians? There's literally no evidence for that. 
it seems like this is exactly the kind of theological reciprocity that Berkowitz and Salvatic were worried about, right? They're giving a bone. They're giving something to the Christian side, right? Like, yes, we were the subject, you know, six million of ours were exterminated, but it could have happened to you. You can imagine, I know, Ruth, I agree. You can imagine the kind of response that that paragraph got. We're going to come back to it. Okay, the irreconcilable difference between Jews and Christians won't be settled to the end time. A new relationship between Jews and Christians won't weaken Jewish practice, although according to figures like Berkowitz and Salvatic, just the statement alone about Nazis might weaken Jewish practice, but you know, okay. And Jews and Christians might work, uh, must work together for justice and peace. And it was signed by Tickford Fry Markensky, Peter Oakes, David Novak, and Michael Singer. Um, okay, four Jewish theologians, uh, very, very well respected. Tickford Fry Markensky lived just a few miles away from me. Um, in Evanston, very sadly, she passed away from cancer at a very young age. Um, her husband, by the way, is a very well respected conservative rabbi right in my neighborhood. <clears throat> in any case, John Levinson, professor of Harvard University, wrote an outstanding article responding to the statement. Needless to say, he did not like it. And John Levinson is a very incisive writer. He's actually one of my absolute favorite academic writers. He just gets to the point um, so perfectly. And he writes an article for commentary aptly called How Not to Conduct Jewish-Christian Dialogue. And as you can expect, it's all about this idea of like, oh, you give me something, I give you something. Oh, you're gonna give me that you don't think I killed your God? Okay, I'll give you that I'm not gonna, that you could have been a victim to the Nazis, right? Deborah Met suffers from one of the great pitfalls of interfaith dialogue. Given the history of inspired contempt and animosity, it's tempting in such exercises to avoid discussion of fundamental beliefs, right? Like it makes sense that they didn't wanna get into the nitty gritty of the differences. But when you do that, when you ignore those differences, the goal becomes reaching an agreement in the matter of two countries that submit to arbitration in an effort to end longstanding tensions. And this is what I think is such a fun line. Or of a husband and wife who go to a marriage counselor in the hopes of overcoming the point of contention in their relationship. Commonalities are stressed and differences, the reason for entering into dialogue in the first place are minimized, neglected, or denied altogether. Once you adopt this model, the objective becomes not just agreement, but mutual affirmation. Mm. The critical judgments that the religious traditions have historically made are, are presented as merely the tragic fruit of prejudice and misunderstanding. So it's like, oh, isn't it so sad that we murdered your ancestors for 2000 years? Well, those days are gone. Now we're, we could be buddies. And so what you got for us theologically, what can you give us? Um, that's how Levinson sees it. And David Berger sees uh, it very similarly. Um, he says, no, no, Jews and Christians do not worship the same God. In fact, according to Jewish law, and I think he says this may be a little bit too strongly because there's debate in medieval halacha, and of course, Berger knows that, but he says, no, Christianity is considered a vodah zara. Many Jews, foreign worship, many Jews died to underscore this point. And the bland assertion that Christianity is not a viable religious choice for Jews is thoroughly inadequate. Um, okay, so I think I want to move on because we have very little time. But Deborah Met was quite controversial. Um, and what I think is so interesting about the most two recent documents that have been produced collectively by Jews in response to the church's overtures is that they're both Orthodox. Deborah Met was produced primarily by, I hate the word conservatox, but I would say um, Tickford Fry Markensky and David Novak were conservative. Well, I, I, I prefer to just say observant. They're observant Jews, but maybe they weren't uh, considered by Orthodox Jews to be uh, within their own communities, but absolutely observant Jews. Um, and Deborah Met as a whole, nobody would argue is an Orthodox document. Um, that's not the case with these two documents uh, produced in 2015 and 2017. 2015, we find to do the will of our Father in heaven. And 2017, we find between Jerusalem and Rome, reflections on 50 years of Noshartate. This one, to do the will of our Father in heaven, um, was produced specifically in commemoration of the 50th uh, anniversary of Nostra Aetate. Um, and both of these, you can see online, the, signature, the signatories are Orthodox rabbis, very involved in the RCA, um, European rabbis as well. Uh, and again, I don't have so much time to go into this, but what I wanna show you is these documents become increasingly uh, dogmatic about the boundaries that must protect Judaism and increasingly explicit about the responsibility of the church for the Holocaust. 
So that whereas in Deborah Met, you, you find, oh, Nazism was not a Christian phenomenon. And had they killed all the Jews, they would have turned their murderous wrath to the Christians. Here, you see absolutely the opposite. Um, after two millennia of mutual hostility and alienation, we recognize historic opportunity before us. And here we have the very first statement of to do the will of our Father in heaven. The Shoah ended 70 years ago. It was the warped climax to centuries of disrespect, oppression, and rejection of Jews, and the consequent enmity that developed between Jews and Christians. It's the failure, the failure to break through this contempt for the good of humankind, weakened resistance to evil forces of anti-Semitism that engulfed the world in murder and genocide. So stop short of equating Nazis with the church, which of course it shouldn't do, uh, but it gets very, very close to that. And I wanna just scroll down to between Jerusalem and Rome, um, where here it says, again, at almost at the very beginning of the document, the Shoah was a historical nadir of the relations between Jews and our non-Jewish neighbors in Europe. Out of the content nurtured by Christianity, a bitter and evil shoot sprouted forth, murdering six million of our brethren. I think with the success, um, what, what the success of the Jewish-Christian dialogue can tell us, particularly between the observant Orthodox community and conservative leaders of the Catholic Church can tell us, is that boundaries, and I think Karma ben Yochanan shows this so nicely, boundaries are the most important thing to ensuring productive dialogue. In other words, if you don't accept that the other side is who they say they are, if you're denying the very essence of their self-understanding, oh, you think you're a Jew, but I see you only as a potential Christian, or you think you're a Jew, I'll tell you what it means to be a Jew, you cannot have dialogue because the most central prerequisite for dialogue is saying, I will give you, I, I will affirm your dignity by believing you when you say who you are. Oh, wait, you're, you're, you're muted, Ruth, but I'll, I'll stop the share. I wanna hear you though. Oh, it's Maya Angelou. <laughs> oh, what? No, what is Maya Angelou? Tell me, I wanna hear, I wanna. So, you know, when someone tells you who they are, believe them. Ooh, the I love that. I didn't know That's that. That's great. How do I stop the, oh, here, I see stop the share. Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful, that's a, I, I didn't know that. But that's exactly, I think what we're seeing is that the, in the development of the, this dialogue um, has become, I think, increasingly successful as the church recognizes it cannot treat Jews simply as potential Christians. Well, we have two minutes. <laughs> two minutes. I'm happy to give like five or a few minutes, go a few minutes over with questions. Any comments, questions? I know that there are some things brought up in the chat. Um, yes. So I know that Jessica brought up in chat earlier in the class that is there also a position that Jesus was Mashiach ben Yosef and not Mashiach ben David? Uh, Jessica, did I get that right? I don't have the answer to that question, but I don't think so. I mean, I would have to look at Greenberg would be an interesting uh, thinker for your question, but I, I, as far as I know, I don't think so. Any other? Yeah. So uh, also, um, this you you touched on something I was thinking about all week. I kept thinking. So is Jesus like a Shabtai Svi? Yeah. Which would be the false Messiah. Or is he just one of a number of, you know, inspired people who said what he said, and then his disciples were the ones who latched onto him because he wasn't there anymore and turned him into something else that he may not have himself wanted to be. Okay, so first of all, I just want to respond quickly to Jessica. So yeah, I think it's very possible that Greenberg says it, but I don't have a source for you. So I don't want to say 100%. It wouldn't be anybody else that I've seen engaged in this question. So what's your question, Ruth? Your question is, is he a, you're asking about whether we as Jews could view him as a false messiah? No, yeah. no, I'm thinking that he's, he's, he's not a Shabtai Tzvi. I'm, I'm saying, I'm, I'm asking, it sounds like that he, he himself was not looking to make a new religion. Right, right, his right. Disciples did it. Right, so correct. he's yeah. more failed. He is a prophet 
who came and tried to get people to listen to him. And like many other prophets, <laughs> and he got killed. Like Yirmiyahu got killed. No, no, Yirmiyahu died, but Yeshayahu was killed. You know, prophets are murdered all the time in Tanakh for what they said. Yeah, I mean, according to, I guess, classical Jewish thinking, there wouldn't have been prophets in the first century. So I'm not sure exactly what we mean by a prophet, but certainly you can say he lived as a Jew. He died as a Jew. He had a Jewish message. Scholars talk about what's called the historical Jesus. And they go through, they call from the New Testament, those oldest, oldest layers that can be attributed to the original, to, to the historical Jesus. And there really is a very strong consensus today that we have no evidence that he was trying to start a, re, a, a new religion, that he perceived himself as a son of God, and that high Christology, the way that the church fathers would perceive Jesus as being, uh, again, the, I guess this is related to the concept of Shituf, but being, um, you know, a deity who came into human form. So that sort of high Christology, you don't see that in the sayings of Jesus. You see a lot of engagement with Halacha. He's going into shuls. He's giving Divrei Torah, Shabbos morning. He's interpreting the scriptures. He has harsh words for the Purushim, for the, for the Pharisees. Um, and so he has a message, but you can frame that message as a, as a exclusively Jewish message. Now it's Paul, who actually is not anti-law. I think he gets a wrong reputation for that. But it's Paul who says that if you are a pagan or a Gentile, Roman, who wants to follow Jesus and join the community, you do not need to do that through Judaism, right? Through adopting law. You can do that outside of law. So law is not inherently bad, according to Paul. It's just not necessary for Gentiles. Paul is misunderstood as being anti-law. Again, we have, no, we have no evidence for that. That does not seem to be the case at all. He says, if you're circumcised, great, that's fine. And if you're not, that's fine too, as long as you are believing that Jesus was Christos. The point is, is that there's a huge difference between the high Christology of the third and fourth century that you find in the church fathers and the, the historical Jesus. So I think you're absolutely right. Well, any other, maybe one more question or comment and then we'll say goodbye. <laughs> okay, I have one more comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I also hold on. I oh, okay, fine. And then we'll we'll go to Alana. So Ruth and then Alana, and then we'll we'll say goodbye. Yeah. Okay. So what Yitz Greenberg is <laughs> saying that uh, it's not that God so much recedes more that humans must accept more responsibility that the human humankind matures and more is expected of them. That does smack of childhood's end. That science fiction story about the the natural development and evolution of humankind until they you know well you know until they ascend or they become something else but it's that sense of there's a there's a derech there's a path right. and humankind has to keep on moving and developing and that the that god's receding is a natural uh consequence of this development and actually may be actually part of what is supposed to be so oh, not absolutely that's what he says that we're moving towards redemption so for greenberg redemption is the end goal that's everything that guides all of human history right that's childhood's end interesting oh that's fascinating so i don't know that text very interesting thank you all right we'll end with alana and if, i'm sorry i forgot to mention this the question that alana asked last week had to do with pope francis and the jews today this is a very complicated question Pope Francis, on the one hand, has shown, kind of like John, John Paul II, a lot of public affection for the Jewish community. Uh, he's very close with uh, Abraham Skorka, the rabbi of uh, Argentina, who's a second generation of, um, he's actually a Polish Jew, Skorka, and they co-wrote a book together. You can look up their book. Um, and so they, even way before um, Pope Francis became Pope, he had this close relationship with his local Jewish community. On the other hand, he's not the sophisticated theologian that we find in Benedict. And sometimes he falls onto classic Jewish, anti-Jewish tropes that he does not interrogate. And so Pope Francis, unfortunately, has used the word Pharisees in his speeches in a way that depicts Pharisees as greedy, corrupt. And he's been told repeatedly, this is offensive to the Jewish community. Please stop using the term Pharisees. Um, 
things have gotten a little bit better in recent years. You know, of course he does not write every word of his speeches, but he still reviews them. Uh, and so I would say he doesn't have the theological sophistication that, um, that someone like uh, Benedict had, but at the same time, he, um, he has a knack for social gestures that reminds me of Pope John Paul II. And he, as you know, is a much more progressive Pope um, and so uh, that has also led him to be, I think, more sensitive about interreligious dialogue in general. So that's like a really high level generalization about Francis. The answer is it's a, it's a little complicated, but he has a, a social friendship with many Jewish leaders and he was receptive. Oh, good. He was receptive ultimately after a few tries to the feedback about not using the word Pharisees in his speeches. All right, thank you very much and uh, be in touch. I hope to learn with all of you sometime again soon. Take care. All right, thank you, Dr. Simkovich, for this series. Um, feels, like, feels like I got like a semester course packed in very tightly. Um, to everyone who enjoyed this class, the recordings will be posted on Facebook Live for today in less than a half hour. And if you want to learn more with Grisha, we have more Falsman classes, including a few starting up after Thanksgiving. You can find out more at grisha.org slash classes. Take care, everyone.